Hello, and welcome to the Sasha Sessions, a Team USA podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Cohen, Olympic silver medalist in figure skating. Joining me this week is Alex Mazialis. Alex is an Olympic silver medalist and grew up with a rich family history in fencing. He is qualified to represent Team USA at his third Olympic Games in Tokyo this summer. Welcome, Alex. Thank you so much for having me here. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. You have such a unique history and set of circumstances. As the son of a three-time Olympic fencer, you went to your first Olympic Games at the age of two and multiple games after that when your father was a referee. So you've been steeped in Olympic fencing history since day one. Do you think becoming a fencer was an inevitability for you? For me, I think my goal was always to be an Olympian. I don't think there's ever an, an inevitability for anyone, for anything. Um, you have to work for for what you want. My goal was always set on to make the Olympics and ultimately to get an Olympic gold. Obviously, I'm not quite there yet, but came pretty close in, in Rio. And um, for me, you know, I, I never took things for granted. Um, I never took any victory took for granted, never let that get to my head. It was always about building and building and getting better and better with each practice and each competition. And that's something that my parents really instilled in me from a very young age. My father's, you know, a coach on the strip and then a father at home. Obviously, I, I understood his history with the Olympic Games from a young age. You know, that's what inspired me to want to take my own Olympic path. But uh, at the fencing club, you know, at the competitions, uh, he's still a coach, uh, albeit one with great experience and one of the best in the world. So, um, you know, I don't think it was an inevitability, but it was it was definitely something I always had my sights set on from the very beginning. And can you recall when you first realized what the Olympics really were, what they meant, and that this was something you wanted to train for and that you wanted to be on that podium? I think that from the very from like my earliest memories, I, I had already, you know, formulated these ideas. Uh, I, I remember as a kid in in kindergarten and first grade and stuff, the, the first thing I would do when kids would come over, it would be to show my dad, uh, show them my dad's like little trophy case he used to have. It had his all, all his Olympic rings, his, you know, Ivy League stuff, um, a, a bunch of various medals and, and whatnot. And that from the very beginning set the tone for, you know, the success I wanted to have. Uh, going on to, into the future and his explanation of what the Olympics were from a very young age. Uh, you know, the Olympics have obviously been a huge part of my, uh, of his life and my life, but he always spoke about the Olympics in such, uh, in such high esteem uh, about it, not just being a celebration of the best athletes in sport uh, in the world, but also a way for, you know, people to come together and rally around, a cause that unifies everyone. He, he always spoke about it in this idea of unity, uh, especially being Greek ourselves. And whenever we would go back to Greece, certain times we'd visit ancient Olympia and he would tell the stories about how people would put down their swords. These warring states around Greece would would cease their wars so that people could come together to enjoy and celebrate sport. And that for me always resonated. So I always wanted to be an Olympian, not just because of the athletic achievements, but also the Olympic values that we talk about so highly. And I'm sure it must be a little bit of a tenuous balance with pressure and expectation with such respect for your father's accomplishments and this balance of trying to follow in his footsteps, but maybe not in his shadow. And so I'm curious, 
you know, you've grown up surrounded with the culture of the Olympics and with fencing. And I believe your sister is also a fencer who will be joining you in Tokyo, which is incredibly exciting. But I'd love to break down that balance of admiring your father and wanting to be like him and go to three and maybe four Olympic games to outdo him. But but what's what was that like as a child to know how much he'd accomplished and to not want to fall in his shadow? I think my parents just did a really good job of making sure that there's this separation there. You know, what he did is very different than what I did. Even though he was a three-time Olympian, there were certain be- benchmarks I was hitting uh, at a young age that, you know, he wasn't able to to do when he was a, a fencer as well. My dad likes to use the example that I won my first open, like U.S. Open senior national championship when I was 14. But when he was 14, he just picked up his first electric foil. You know, that's when he had his first his first foray into real fencing. It's setting expectations like that and, you know, having parents that are so supportive that understand I have my own path that's going to be very different than my father's, even if we want to accomplish the same goals or we had same uh, goals growing up. I, I never looked at this as extra pressure. You know, I, I never felt like, oh, I'm going to fall short of my father. That's not what I was worried about. I, if anything, that pressure I used as extra motivation to be, to try and one up him, you know, like, as you said, you know, I, I want to be better than him. I, I want to do better than he did. And touching upon the fact that you were accomplishing so much from such a young age in the sport of fencing. And a lot of that was because you're fortunate to grow up in a fencing family. You were the youngest member of the U.S. Olympic fencing team in 2012 in London And you were the youngest male member of the entire Summer Olympic team. And maybe you can explain to the audience perhaps why this tends to be a little bit of an older sport and perhaps some of the advantages that you've gained from starting so early. Yeah, in London, I was 18 years old, so I was really young. I hadn't even started college yet. Um, And, you know, fencing generally is a older sport. You know, you see a lot of fencers being successful in their late 20s, sometimes even in their 30s. In my event in particular, you, a lot of the successful fencers are in their mid to late 20s and some of them in their late 30s. Where we were able to be successful in the U.S., I think a lot of it actually has to be attributed to, you know, my father and the program he's been able to build because he identified from a uh, from a, from early on when he started coaching that the U.S. is going to be a completely different system than anywhere else in the world. A lot, The U.S. doesn't have the luxury of having these government programs funding these athletes so that they can keep competing into their mid to late 20s. Um, ideally, for him, you know, we have to peak earlier. We have to really focus on getting that experience in the senior level at an earlier age so that you know, by the time we're going to college and potentially away from our personal coaches, we've built enough, enough of a base where we can hopefully still grow, at least maintain our level, but grow a little bit at least in college. And then after that, if we have this, you know, enough success on the senior level, maybe we'll be, we'll be inspired to keep going. Uh, a lot of fencers in the U.S. fall into trouble because after they graduate from their colleges, oftentimes they're getting very, very good degrees from a lot of very prestigious universities. And uh, it doesn't make financial sense for them to you know, want to go make an Olympic team or want to pay their way if they don't see a, a future for them in the sport. But what my dad was able to do, especially with his first Olympic Olympian, Garrick Meinhardt, who competed 
in in Beijing as the youngest member of that a male member of that Olympic team um, was to kind of break that mold and show that we can be successful at a young age. You just got to get them that experience from a way younger age. I was going to senior World Cups by the time I was 14, 15, which was pretty unheard of um, at the time. But nowadays you see so many more juniors and cadets, which are under 20, under 17 fencers, going to these senior competitions, getting that experience so you can they can start uh, being more successful at the senior level at an earlier age. Um, so I think my dad recognized that the U S is always going to be, was always going to be very different in that sense. And from there, he built a system that it seems like even the rest of the world is some, uh, somewhat replicated. That's pretty incredible because you're essentially doubling the career length, Olympic career length of a fencer. Uh, many sports, you maybe have one or two goes as swimming is one of the sports where you see swimmers go in two or three times, but it sounds like with fencing, you could potentially be in your prime for five. Uh, it's definitely possible. I, I wouldn't say that you're in your prime for five. Um, I wouldn't say I was not, I was in my prime for London, my first games. Um, and, you know, if I keep going for another Olympic games after this uh, in, in Paris or, you know, even way down the line in LA, I wouldn't necessarily know or say I would be in my peak for it, either of those. Um, but you definitely can elongate someone's career and, and have them go to so many Olympics. I think it's already such an accomplishment for anyone to make, you know, one Olympic team to be, make three, four, five, that, that takes a great amount of a tremendous amount of tenacity. It takes a tremendous amount of focus and it, it really takes a system around you to help you support you through that whole period of your life. So it's definitely something that, you know, people laughed at my dad when he first said that Garrick was going to make an Olympic team at 18. But nowadays we have people trying to make Olympic teams at 18. And that's, you know, that's more of the norm than it is, uh, more the norm than it is like the outlier. So we have these young fencers coming up and trying to make teams. It just shows that if you build it, they will come and you can, you can change norms with a vision. So that's, that's something really admirable and, really cool that your family is a part of changing kind of the tradition around fencing. I want to go back to your experience. Obviously, you had the Olympic flame and energy and values as part of your whole childhood and upbringing. So what was London like for you? Was it everything you imagined? Did you party with the whole village was opening closing ceremonies what you expected the performance so I know personally that my first and second games were completely different experiences mentally emotionally in terms of expectation and I'd love to hear what it was like for you absolutely for me London was like a culmination of all the work I'd put in those four years beforehand and of a dream to be an Olympian, to be like my father, to, to experience the same things he experienced when he was an athlete and going through opening ceremonies, meeting all these big name athletes, training and, and hanging out in the Olympic Village. All these things were so new to me and so, so great and exactly, you know, what I had pictured and, and what I I'd wanted out of being an Olympian and having my dad to guide me through it all was ex incredible. But um, I think because of that, you know, I lost a little bit of focus on, you know, what was truly, was truly important was, which was the fencing event itself. Not that I underperformed, but I, I definitely felt like there were times where I wasn't able to perform to the 
very best of my abilities or exceed my fencing like I had done in competitions prior, right? I, I think I ended up 13th individually, which was kind of on par with my world ranking at the time. And we ended up fourth in team after upsetting the French team that was higher ranked than we were. I think the fencing, I did fence reasonably well, but it, I did get distracted by all the, not bells and whistles, but like all the other experiences you have at the Olympic Games. That was one of the biggest differences, as you said, you know, your first your first two games are so different from each other. Because in Rio, although I was so excited to go through the whole process again, whether it was processing, getting all your, your gear, uh, all your swag, whether it was going through opening ceremonies, meeting meeting new uh, Olympians and 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 uh, hanging out with, you know, old friends you met four years ago. Um, you know, obviously I was very excited for all that and I, I enjoyed all of that, but uh, the biggest difference was in that second games, I really understood, you know, what my goals were and, you know, nothing excited me more than, than get, wanting to get up there and, and just fence. And you were the first U.S. man to win two medals at the same games since 1904, I believe, with silver in your individual event and bronze in the team event. And you came into those games ranked number one. Something that I have to touch upon, which was part of my own Olympic experience, was that if you go in with hopes and expectations of gold and you win silver, it's it's a tough place to be. And I think there are happiness studies where those who win bronze and those who win gold are incredibly happy, but those who are silver and fourth are not quite as happy. And in, in it's a tough, it's such a tough experience to describe and explain to the outer world. I think there's a mix of fans and supporters who applaud that performance and that experience and what a silver medal means at the Olympic Games, which is just immense and how few people ever accomplish that. And yet there are the people that if it's not gold, it's not good enough and you failed. And so that is projected upon all your own inner experiences and feelings. And I was hoping you could walk me through a little bit what that was like, maybe going into that final match, realizing that you'd won the silver medal, and then what it was like going home from those games in the months that followed. Yeah. So going into that gold medal match, obviously, um, and into the competition as a whole, obviously I, I knew I was ranked number one in the world. I'd been fencing really well on the world cup circuit up until that point, you know, I multiple medals, definitely a, a, a couple of victories on the world cup circuit. So I felt really good about my fencing about, you know, potentially winning a gold medal here. And ultimately that was the goal, both in the individual and the team event. Unfortunately, that that didn't come to fruition. Um, I battled through a lot of adversity, coming from a fourteen-eight deficit in the quarter quarterfinals, which was incredible against a fencer I'd never beaten before. And then in the in the gold medal match, I lost to an Italian that I'd never lost to before. Coming so close to your to your dreams of a gold, obviously, as you said, it can be heartbreaking. But that's where I think I had such a amazing family and uh, support system around me because. At that moment, you know, losing that last touch and, you know, sitting on the strip crying, you know, trying to gather myself and, and you know, you know, be a good sport and, and congratulate my opponent. And that was when my father, my coach came over and instead of the coach 
coming over to talk to me. It was really my dad coming to talk to me. And he said, just two words, it's okay. You know, I'm proud. And so those four words, I guess, um, were enough to turn those tears of, you know, sorrow and, and disappointment into tears of joy and just immense pride about uh, of, about what, what I've been able to accomplish and what this means to both me and so many other people out there who are supporting me throughout uh, throughout my Olympic experience and, and my Olympic dreams. Um, I l- luckily had so much family in Rio. I had my, my mom, my sister, uh, my dad, obviously. And then also I had like about 20 of my closest friends from college also there cheering me on. So the second I was able to get into the stands and, you know, uh, after, uh, after, you know, embracing my opponent and congratulating him, you know, thanking the referees and, and whatnot, uh, being able to go up there and embrace my family, you know, hug my mom, um, for her to tell me it's okay. And how proud she was of me and my sister as well. And then having my, you know, 12, like 20 of my best friends there, doing exactly the same and, and cheering me on, uh, you know, those feel, those feelings of, uh, of, you know, disappointment faded so quickly and, and really became just, you know, feelings of immense, immense pride. Well, that's incredibly impressive how quickly you were able to process and transform that experience. I know personally, I think I was coming from a mental perspective that I couldn't even quite imagine the end of February 2006, you know, that seemed like the last day (laughs) in my life. And so when I was standing on the podium looking at the U.S. flag, it was, I think, just shock and confusion that the Olympics were actually over, you know, that 2006 had actually come and gone. And now what was I supposed to do? And I wasn't going home with the color medal that, that I had hoped for. And so I think for me, it took quite a number of years to really kind of think about that and process that. And I think this is a perfect segue into better understanding your sport and the mental aspects of fencing. But I think in a sport like figure skating and in many sports, it's incredibly technical and you train your body so specifically and you hone it and you hone it and it's your tool. And at the same time, you train mentally But you have to let your mind go and trust your body. And so I've always found it's this interesting mix, this uncertain balance of training your body, completely trusting it, being mentally strong, but also letting your mind take the back seat. And sometimes that's very hard to do because you feel like you're leaving things to chance if you're just sending your body out alone onto an Olympic stage. And I'd love to better understand fencing because I think it's so incredible to watch, but there's so much spontaneity. It's not a routine that you do by yourself. It's it's a dance between two opponents and you have to be, I mean, obviously you know better what you have to be doing, <laughs> but it seems like you have to be reacting just with your intuition and then if you try to think too much, it's too late. And so I'd love to understand the balance of the physical and the mental training going in and then also how you respond in real time to what your opponent is doing. Yeah, as you said, it really is a dance between two opponents. You can't turn your brain off because, you know, your opponent might surprise you and you can't just, you know, blindly do actions that you think will be successful. But also you don't want to get in your own head and overthink situations as well. It's it's this really specific balance that you have to uh, achieve and then not only achieve with that, but then balance you have to achieve with your physical 
uh, standpoint, you know, being able to execute those actions um, correctly from a technical standpoint to not get out of balance. So like, even if you're able to defend against the opponent's action, you're actually in the position to come back and hit them as well. Um, and that, as you said, is one of the really important parts about fencing. But I think for me, when I'm fencing most successfully, it's when I, you know, as as I'm sure you you know, it's when you're in the zone and you've touched you touched on it uh, in in your question there. You know, there's a there's a feeling of you have to let go uh, a little bit. And and for me, when I'm fencing the best, like when I was fencing in that in that quarterfinal match to come to come back and make the medal rounds. You know, I, I made one or two technical adjustments at the very, especially at the beginning of that comeback because I knew I was making a certain mistake, right? But afterwards, it would, I I couldn't tell you how I um, scored a lot of those touches because you know, in my I kind of just like was in the zone and I you know when you when I feel like when I'm in the zone, I forget a lot afterwards about what I exactly I did. You know, I can barely touch tell you what I what happened in the last touch and. Probably I can tell you because I watched a video <laughs> about it, right? And so, it, but it is really tricky because a lot of fencers do struggle with getting in their own heads, overthinking things. And I, I think a lot of times when you see a swing in a fencing match, oftentimes it ha- it's rarely uh, about the technical aspects. It's about the mental aspect where someone was able to make a change and then you were not able to adapt in time. That's the way my father really talks about um, fencing is that, it's all about adaptability and, and it's a game of changes. Well, someone's going to come out doing one thing. Then the person who makes the next change is going to score a touch or two. And then you keep going until someone makes the last change. Right. And I, I always think that is a really good way to describe fencing because if you don't make that change, your opponent's just going to hit you the same way over and over and over again. It really takes a lot of mental fortitude to a trust your body to react because a lot of times we're dictating actions on what the opponent's doing, right? So I have to trust my body. Even if I want to do a certain thing, I need to trust that if the opponent throws out something unexpected, I have a way to counter that or I have a way to go around that. Um, yet I do have to be prepared to know, hey, my I know my opponent wants to do this, so I need to be ready. Like I need to think that I'm probably going to use this action going forward. But it's a, it's really a game of cat and mouse because you have to be constantly out outthinking your opponent and and really uh, adapting to anything they throw at you. And going back to getting in the zone or finding yourself in the zone, which I find a lot of athletes, that's usually how they describe it. It's not like there's a mechanical process to get there. There's like, oh, I'm here and this is fantastic. Why am I not always here? And having gone to two Olympics, training for your third, being a little bit older now and having a lot of experiences competing and knowing yourself better and your own emotional, mental constitution, have you found, have you found that there are certain things that you can do consistently to shift states and to get in a place where you're really trusting your body? I think this is the quintessential question for all very competitive athletes and they know this is where they want to be and many people spend hours and hours with sports psychologists trying to find the road there for me this might sound a little cheesy um, but my mom was a musician and for me it's all about rhythm when I find myself in a good rhythm what that means you know I may not be able to describe when I find myself in that good rhythm that's generally when I feel my like I'm in the zone and I think the way 
I'm able to train myself to get in that rhythm is to fence, you know, more relaxed to train more relaxed so that I'm not feeling like, um, very jerky with my motions. It's all about being fluid with your actions, fluid with fluid with what you want to do. And for me, the way I achieve that is a lot of times in practice, you know, it's okay to lose touches and to maybe even lose bouts in practice. But if you're practicing certain things, practicing being in a good rhythm and, and trying to feel, get a feel for your opponent and feel like, Oh, when I do this, what's the timing of which, you know, they're going to react to this. So that, you know, I might get hit because I'm playing with fire in practice right now, but in competition, I'm going to be ready and it's going to feel a lot natural, more natural for me to actually hit that action. Um, so it's, it's all about trying to bring that rhythm both to training and to competition. And I think when, when people are fencing well, not only are they fencing in the rhythm, but they're fencing in a way that disrupts their opponent's rhythm. Um, that's how I always describe to our younger fencers and, and people I'm giving advice to, how, especially how to play defense against, other, against someone who's very strong and attacking you. You need to find a way to break their rhythm, make them feel uncomfortable. Because when they start feeling uncomfortable, when they feel like, oh, he could come at me at any second to, to counter what I'm doing, that's when they're taken out of that zone. They're taken out of their rhythm because they're, they're really thinking about, oh, he's going to do this, he's going to do that. But uh, on a defensive side, if you're able to, yeah, if you're able to break that, you, you become a lot more successful. And then attacking, it's all about trying to stay in rhythm even when your opponent is trying to take you out of rhythm. And so it's really about trying to outthink your opponent. You see your opponent take one step in. Well, you have to decide, does that mean he's going to jam the distance right away and make me miss? Or do I just finish right now because he's not expecting it? And, uh, you know, that's where you practice on those, you know, fine line situations in practice. That makes me want to ask a follow-up question that may not go anywhere, but I'll ask. This cat and mouse game, this getting into a rhythm, disrupting your opponent's rhythm, have you found that this applies anywhere in your life outside of fencing, that these kind of tactics and skills that you've learned in this sport somehow have really helped you in other parts of your life? Uh, well, I hope I'm not fighting with people enough to, you know, have to, <laughs> to, have to use that. Um, but... I, I'm sure that it, it applies uh, in ways that I may not even be able to describe right now. Um, thinking about it, I, I do think it, it's very helpful with you know de-escalating situations that don't need to be escalated. I think this helps because you're we're trained to problem solve and find solutions. Um, you know, I think it's it's helped me in a sense. You know, maybe both ways. Uh, I, I was a mechanical engineer in major in college. And that's all about problem solving and in, in particular, problem solving situations that you weren't expecting. And you, you brought up your major in college, and I believe you went to Stanford and fairly recently wrote an open letter to Stanford leading a group of athletes, basically speaking out against the college cuts to of various programs. And can you explain in a little bit more detail what exactly happened and when you decided to get involved and speak out? Yeah, so uh, I can tell you exactly. I believe it was July 8th of last year, Stanford announced that they were cutting 11 uh, varsity programs, um, 10 of those being Olympic, Olympic programs. So uh, right from the very get-go, you know, I was already very upset. Um, I 
I felt as though I had been disrespected a bit during my time at Stanford, even though I loved my experience at Stanford. I, so, my, all my, uh, so many of my best friends come from my Stanford experience. Uh, you know, the education I was able to get was phenomenal. And, you know, it's an experience that I'll never forget. And for, for me, it's a reason why I'm so passionate about this cause because they're taking away opportunities for so many uh, athletes to, to go through the same experience I did and hopefully have a better experience than I did as well. And so I, on the day of the announcements, I wrote on Instagram a, a reflection of what I was feeling. And I, I said I was a combination of frustrated um, and just uh, and furious because you know, these are these are athletes that really defined the epitome of the student athlete, defined you know what we had always been taught to do. I, I, I remember growing up in high school, I was always a student first and an athlete second, you know. Um, and I felt like so many of these athletes that I met at Stanford from these 11 programs really were the epitome of that. And it was unfair that the university would pull the rug out from underneath, not just the current athletes on the teams that are going to have their careers cut short um, and their lives completely altered after this, but to the recruits that, you know, Stanford gave a commitment to to come to Stanford and then to rescind that after promising them a spot after all these recruits had chosen and told other schools, hey, I'm not going to come to here because I'm not going to go to Harvard. I'm not going to go to Notre Dame. I'm going to go to Stanford. Um, and then for them to renege their their commitment to these athletes, I thought was, ex- it was just completely wrong. So that day I connected with an old friend of mine who'd reached out to me over Instagram after seeing what I posted. And we decided to, you know, uh, if Stanford wasn't going to host a town hall or, uh, or, or get the the feelings of the alumni and and the supporters, then we were going to do it personally. And so within a week, me and my friend from uh, freshman year, Natalie Weiss, came up with a town hall, organized a town hall that had um, hundreds of attendees. We we had speakers that you know were part of the Olympic movement, um, people affected by these cuts. And then uh, from there, we organized a group from the eleven sports, you know, to try and fight these cuts to. A, support the efforts of each individual team to reinstate, but also to collaborate amongst the 11 sports. And from there, we were able to meet with, um, you know, share like stakeholders of all kinds, whether they were donors, whether members of the administration, the athletic director. And we were kind of hit by um, with a stone wall and have been for the most part this whole time from the administration, from the leadership, from Stanford. And uh, from there, it became not just 11 sports, but the 36 sports that Stanford represents, the 36 te- uh, varsity teams that they have. And so we had such an outcry of support from, you know, basketball, from even football. I mean, the the signees on our current petition include people like John Elway, people like Andrew Luck, people like Julie Foudy, you know, the, the list goes on and on. And people who just really see the value of athletics and see what not just the value of athletics and the Olympic movement, but also see that the the process in which you deal you treat people has to be better. You cannot we we cannot um, be satisfied with a, a institution you know blindsiding 240 plus student athletes and completely changing and altering or c- uh, completely ending their careers in these sports, um, forcing them to choose between getting a Stanford education and going to another school to pursue their athletic passions. Um, we, we all saw this as wrong. And, you know, 
I guess most recently, uh, after so many months of a lot of stonewalling, but a lot of um, our own research showing all everything that was wrong with their Stanford statement, whether it was due to competitive excellence, whether it was due to lack of fundraising, we've disproven everything that they've said from the very beginning. And now um, we've been able to you know, generate enough of a following that we are meeting with the president of the university, along with members of the board of trustee and a lot of other leadership uh, next Tuesday to discuss these cuts um, more thoroughly, which is the first time they've been open to an hopefully honest dialogue about why these cuts were made and how do we reverse them and right the ship for everyone. Because we've presented a solution that can save the careers of these these athletes and actually help um, trim the deficit that they're, that Stanford Athletics was looking to trim with these cuts and but are not doing with these cuts. Well, it's amazing to hear how passionate you are about this and even more so that you finally got a response. I know dealing with huge bureaucracies and institutions can be tough, but starting a movement and having that kind of support must have been incredible to to be a part of and build. And just the fact that you're able to use this platform as part of Team USA and an Olympic medalist to help other athletes that have perhaps less of a voice and less visibility than you do. And that brings me to an, another topic that I believe you're also passionate about or part of that community in, in some way, which is a recent post that you wrote on your Instagram of the experience of being an Asian American in this time of Asian hate crimes. And and I think what you said was that as um, someone that's half Chinese, you experience racism through a different lens and not directly, but as a witness and as a secondhand victim. And I would love to hear a little bit more about what this time witnessing these events in the news and the media uh, of events of violence against Asian Americans has been like for you personally and how you've responded to it. It's It's been really disappointing. It's been frustrating. It's been angering. Uh, it's just been hurting and uh, hurtful and demoralizing um, to, you know, I know that racism against Asians is not in um, it's not a new subject. This has been going on um, for for a long time, and it did not uh, did not start at the pandemic. But the pandemic certainly exacerbated a lot of the issues and and the use of rhetoric by certain you know um, you know high profile officials and stuff has really uh, fanned the flames and, and made things worse. Um, for me. It, it, it really pains me because I, I am Chinese. My mom I grew up and was born in Taiwan. Uh, uh, most of my family is Chinese. You know, I, I grew up and I went to Chinese American international school. I speak fluent Mandarin. Um, you know, for me, it's, it's just being so disheartening, uh, not just seeing it, you know, on a national level, but even in my own backyard, um, you know, some, one of the things that really kicked off uh, this fight against anti-Asian hate was, the uh, was the 90 year old plus Thai grandfather dying getting pushed over and, and eventually succumbing to his injuries in San Francisco. Um, that was only a 10 minute walk from, from where I live personally. And I have grown up in this neighborhood my whole life. I, you know, I've been in San Francisco for 20, but two years out of my 26 years um, being, being alive. 
I, I've always known San Francisco to be such an open and warm environment. And I was hoping, and I, I hope that the United States is a wo- open and warm and, and, op- and welcoming environment for immigrants. Um, and obviously as, as the son is of two immigrants, you know, that hits home for me um, really hard. But in San Francisco, I've known, I've never seen that kind of uh, vitriol and to see it in my own backyard was so, so disheartening. And for for me, I think it's really changed my whole view on on race and and speaking up um, in against um, acts of racism because for most of my life I, I've been taught you know even when when people are racist people people are rude to you um, it, it's not a reflection of yourself it's a reflection of their own uh, shortcomings of a reflection of their own their own problems so. The best you can do is ignore it and focus on yourself and, and you can still succeed in no matter what you do. And for a long time, that's how I felt. That's, that's what I was taught to do. That's what my friends and family did. Um, you know, it's very ingrained in, in, in Asian culture and Chinese culture in particular that you don't want to really rock the boat and you don't want to make yourself, make yourself a target. But especially when we see such a uptick and rise in anti-Asian hate and hate in general um, that affects other uh, all different um, social, I mean, it's so many different racial demographics. Uh, this is a time we need to speak up against hate. We need to condemn it, and we need to show that it's not okay. Um, it it pains me that the most of so many of the targets the the falls upon the more vulnerable populations in the Asian community and, and other uh, racial de- uh, demographics as well, uh, communities as well. It, a lot of times it's really the, the elder, the elderly being attacked. It is the first generation immigrants who, you know, don't necessarily speak English very well and don't, don't have a way to defend themselves. We, this experience and, you know, the current climate has really taught me that I need to speak up in these in these moments and use my platform to try and uh, provoke change, to to hold people to be accountable and to be better. It's so disheartening to see people losing their lives over hate. For me, it, it's it's just particularly important to try and protect those vulnerable communities that can that can't necessarily protect themselves. That's very well said, and I think so important that you're using your platform while you're competing and you have such awareness and a following to use your voice in this way. And it also just brings up all the complexities of identity, you know, as a fencer, as a child of immigrants, half Chinese, as a Stanford student, you're kind of balancing and cobbling together all these different parts of you. And that brings me to this concept of the athlete's identity. And I think for many, many athletes, it's so difficult when that moment to retire finally comes, whether that's by choice or by injury. And I would love to maybe get a better idea of how you construct your own identity or what you see yourself doing when you retire. I'm sure fencing will always be a big part of your life, but have you thought about your retirement or how you see yourself and who you are if you're not a fencer anymore? Sure. Um, You know, I am very much one to not plan ahead. Um, the most I plan ahead usually is four years in the future, looking at another Olympics. Um, I think a lot of Olympians can uh, re- can identify with the fact that we oftentimes look at our lives in quadrennials. Um, and 
But otherwise, I'm very much a guy who likes to play it by ear. Um, I, I don't like to, you know, necessarily have plans because I think that, you know, plans can always be flexible. You know, I have certain goals I want to achieve, but I don't have necessarily a specific timeline. As far as my identity is concerned, I, you know, I do see myself as a fencer. I also see myself as being Chinese American, proudly so, and Greek American as well. I pride myself in being, you know, hopefully a a positive impact on the next generation of fencers, um, the next generation of you know Asian American athletes. I want to I want to be a role model for them uh, to look up to to show that um, you can be you can be successful both in athletics and in and in school. Um, you, you can get a Stanford degree and still be an Olympic medalist. Um, you know, for me, I think I, I don't know necessarily what I want to do in the future. I think I do want to go for sure to another Olympics because uh, my father was a three-time Olympian and I, I need to go to four just to show him up. <laughs> um, but other than that, I, I, I just want to leave a very, I want to leave a positive impact on, on the world and on the fencers and athletes that come behind me. And I want to be able to inspire people to take up fencing or take up sport in general to better themselves or, um, or to, you know, use this kind of, uh, motivation to better themselves in other ways, whether it's the arts or, or, or literature, you know, um, for me, athletics is just a way to show, um, to show growth and to, and to show that if you, put yourself to something uh, and really dedicate your um, your time and your and your resources to it you can be uh, you can gain so much from it um, and you know obviously athletics is the example for me but I, I'm sure that's the case with music I'm sure that's the case with cooking that's I'm sure that's the case with the arts uh, as well so uh, if there's any like um, I, I guess this goes away from my identity a little bit, but I, I do, I don't know necessarily uh, what I'm going to do after I, I retire. I, I feel like I should probably put my engineering degree to use at some point. Uh, maybe, maybe, you know, um, higher schooling is something that's in my future. I, I, I can't say for sure, but I do want uh, at the end of the day to a be a great role model for fencers coming up behind me and B, to bring more Asian American awareness and Asian American representation to sport as a whole. Because uh, right now, you know, I don't, Asian Americans aren't particularly well represented in elite sports, whether it's the Olympics uh, or the US Olympic team, whether it's uh, the NBA, NFL, all these, all, um, all these massive, massive sports uh, organizations. But I want to set a path and show that, you know, we can be successful in this and it's, and it's a viable option for us. And if those are your goals, nothing should stop you from trying to achieve those goals. Well, just a, a slight bit of advice. You don't need to know what you're doing next. And it sounds like you have at least one more, two more Olympic Games ahead of you if we're counting Tokyo. And I know that everyone will be rooting for you and fingers crossed for gold and it's so exciting to finally have the games happening. So I'm sure you're going to have a, a very fervent fan base cheering. And that brings me to the end of the interview and my last question, something that I ask all my guests. And it's really trying to understand someone's 
Olympic or Paralympic moment in life. And it's just something that you would equate to that feeling of making an Olympic Games or being on an Olympic podium, but perhaps outside of sport or outside of the Games and just something of that importance or magnitude. Um, obviously, with Olympics being you know such a big part of my life, uh, it's hard to equate <laughs> equate other things because you know a lot of my focus has been on on uh, you know competing at the Olympics and and trying and trying to get to that podium moment. I think one thing that stands out in particular uh, was probably and this this actually happened before I went to my first Olympic Games, but you know realizing that I had, you know, been accepted into college, been accepted at Stanford in particular, um, why I was so proud to go to Stanford is from the very beginning, I'd been, you know, that's was the dream school. Right. Um, so I think when I found out, uh, I'd gone, I'd gotten into Stanford, it actually coincided with the day I was competing at the world championships in 2011. <laughs> so, um, I just come off a heartbreaking 15, 14 loss to make the top 16, uh, which would have set me up really well to make the um, you know make the Olympic team uh, from an early point on. Obviously, end up going on to make that Olympic team anyways. But uh, for me, it was very heartbreaking in that moment because I'd lost such a close match, and I thought like I really had a good opportunity to. Even though I was only 17 years old, I was like, you know, I still have this opportunity to go far in the competition. Um, but then, you know, to get told by my father like, hey, it's okay, you know, all this stuff. Oh, but also, by the way, I didn't want to tell you uh, because I didn't want to, you know, you know, distract you from the competition. We also got your acceptance from uh, at, from Stanford in the mail back at home in San Francisco, and I think that was the only one of the main moments where I really felt that same kind of pride and and mix of emotions where I was just like, oh my god, I did it! Like, you know, I you know, people dream of going to Stanford and think it's and it's such a hard thing to get into a school that prestigious. And so up until that point, that's, you know, that was where uh, one of my biggest goals and one of my biggest accomplishments were. But still right now, uh, I'm not sure I've felt the same kind of feeling of being on the podium in Rio and going through my first Olympic Games in London. You know, that's also because I have very little life experience <laughs> uh, currently. And I'm sure hopefully like there will be things in the future that, you know, that also spark that same kind of emotion. And I'm sure um, I'll, I'll be able to find that uh, when the time comes. I think you'll find that there are very few things in life that have the highs and lows of sport, <laughs> that intensity and that reward and also, also that suffering and pain. But there there's nothing like this time in your life. So fully embrace that. And I think yeah. it's just phenomenal that you've been able to balance school and sport at the same time. It's something I think that's very difficult to do. And I was fortunate or however my life unfolded to focus on an Olympic career and then focus on school. And I can't imagine doing both at the same time. So props to you, a lot of respect there. And wishing you can, the- oh, Sorry, if I, if, if I could reinstate the 11 sports that Stanford cut um, last summer, I think that's that that's the that's the next thing. I, that's the closest I would feel to standing on that podium. I think I almost would be more proud of that moment to know that I really affected the lives of hundreds of athletes um, and hopefully thousands of athletes in future generations. Uh, you know, moving forward, that I think uh, would be for me the the outside Olympic moment.
Well, we'll have to put a note in the podcast that people can check in to see what happens and fingers crossed that it does. Best of luck in Tokyo. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Sasha. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure to be here. Please subscribe to Sasha Sessions wherever you get your podcasts. You can find new episodes every Monday. Produced by Bigfoot Music and Sound in New York City.